Our country has been affected enormously by Hurricane Matthew. And we're mindful that a nation like Haiti especially was affected and some 1,000 plus persons have died. I was listening to the news on Friday and I heard that up to Friday, BPL had restored power to all but about 8,000 homes and businesses. And as you drive around the island, you're able to see that there's still hundreds of homes that remain damaged. Some of them roofs are still exposed, making them vulnerable to more rain. Many are without the basic necessities. And they're at the mercy of a financially constrained government and charities with limited resources. I listened to the news and there was an interview with some people who were standing on a social services line, which I don't know why they did that. They had everyone to come to one location to be processed to get help, and it would have been far more sensible to disperse it across the island so that people did not have to stand for six hours in the sun in one place. But they were talking with this one lady, and she was expressing how difficult things are. But you know, the truth is this morning that despite all these hardships that we face and that people face, even in a nation like Haiti where many have lost their lives and many are grieving, life is still a gift. And many who are in the midst of difficulty and great hardships would still acknowledge that life is a gift. And as David said, people would say, it's good to be alive. Well, this morning as we continue our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to a section of the book that speaks honestly about the goodness of life and the hardness of life. And I think it's a timely word for us. Whether the life for us this morning is on Easy Street or on Hardship Boulevard or somewhere in between, this is a timely word, I believe, all of us. So if you've not yet done so, would you turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 11? And this morning our attention will be focused on verses 7 through 10. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 10. I noticed that we have uh, some guests this morning, so I would just say um, we at Kingdom Life, we preach expository sermons through whole books of the Bible or major sections of Scripture week by week, so it's all planned out. And I didn't just wake up this morning or decide yesterday that I would preach this. This has been planned out for about a year now, and this is where we have come to this morning. And also I would mention that as we are going through the book of Ecclesiastes, we started this in February, so we are finishing it up in another few weeks. And as we go through the this uh, section of Scripture, I'll be referring to the preacher. That's not me. That's the author of Ecclesiastes who refers to himself at the opening of the book as the preacher. So hopefully that helps you 
for those of you who are joining us at this point in the series. Well, please follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And if you have another translation, yours will read slightly differently. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to gather. We thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, would you use your word to build up your church and for the good of all who sit under it this morning. I pray that you'd give us all ears to hear and hearts to obey what you are saying to us from your word. I pray for much grace, Lord, to help me to be faithful, to proclaim your truth to these who are gathered. We ask, O Lord, that you would enable me to stay within the four corners of your word. Would you keep me from error? Would you keep me from excess? And would you cause me to proclaim your word as I should? We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I mentioned that chapter 11 in Ecclesiastes marks the beginning of the conclusion of the book. And we saw last week in verses 1 through 6 how the preacher calls us to take risk and trust God as we live our lives in this fallen world. And as a further part to his conclusion, sounds like I lost volume or something, As a further part to this conclusion, the preacher now in verses 7 through 10 calls us to soberly enjoy life. And this sober enjoyment of life has to do with this weighty statement that the preacher makes in verse 9, where he encourages the enjoyment of life, but he adds, God will bring you into judgment. And so in essence, what the preacher is saying in these four verses is this. Enjoy your fleeting life, but remember God's final judgment. Enjoy your fleeting life, but remember God's final judgment. And so despite the fact that our world is fallen and life is broken, we are called to enjoy life but we are also called to allow God's coming judgment of all people to influence and impact how we enjoy life. In our remaining time this morning, I want to consider how the preacher calls us to soberly enjoy life. 
And for those of you who are taking notes, I've organized my thoughts under two statements. The first one is this. Enjoy your fleeting life. That's what the preacher is saying. He's saying, life is short. Enjoy it. He calls us to enjoy life and reminds us that it is fleeting. And the fact that life is fleeting is a statement that we can all agree with. Notice how the preacher begins in verse 7. He says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In verse 7, the preacher is affirming the sweetness of life. He is affirming the gift of being able to open our eyes and the eyes of the living and being able to see the light of the sun. And this is something that we take for granted. We take for granted that we go to bed and we get up. But Scripture says it is the Lord who awakens us. And it is a gift when we are able to see the light of day. But more than affirming the sweetness of the gift of life, the preacher is also describing physical life at its best. When our bodies are well and when our eyes are sound and we are truly enjoying life. That's what the preacher is describing in verse 7. But the truth is that for some people today, some who are alive, light is not pleasant, light is unpleasant. Because for them, when light comes, it's a sign that the day has come and there's a need to get up. And for many, they would rather just close the curtains and go to bed and hope for night to come again. And so it's a good thing when we are able to enjoy the sweetness of life and the pleasantness of the sun. We're full of life. We're full of vigor. And the preacher says, if you live a long life, in verse 8, he says, if you live for many years, you should rejoice in them all. That's his main point. And it's, it's an especially profound point when we consider all that the preacher's been saying. The preacher's been telling us that this world that we live in is fallen, it is broken. There are contradictions that we don't understand. There's uncertainty. There's risk. Yet, we are still called to enjoy it. But in the latter part of verse 8, what we see is the preacher adds this sober reality. He says, But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Now notice closely what the preacher is saying. He's saying, If you live many years, rejoice in them all, but there will be many dark days. See, this is honesty. This is the truth. This is a fact of life. And those of us who accept God's word should not be surprised when the dark days come. Because come they will. The name it, claim it, prosperity, positive thinking preachers ignore this verse. And they tell you that if you have enough faith, if you read their books and pray the prayers they tell you to pray, You'd have unbroken prosperity and happiness. And you can have victory all the time. But sadly, the Word of God does not confirm that. And therefore, we should not fall for that. What the Word of God says 
is if you live many lives, rejoice. Many years, sorry, rejoice in those years, but know that the days of darkness will be many. But notice the contrast between years and days. It's important for us to see this because it helps us to keep in perspective what he's really saying. He says if we live long years, we will see many dark days. He doesn't say we're going to see many, many dark years. He says we're going to see many dark days. These days of calamity and difficulty and trial, all the result of living in a fallen world, sometimes as a result of our own sin, preacher says you'll have many dark days if you live a long life. And then at the end of verse 8 the preacher makes this assessment. He says all that comes is vanity. Now you'd remember that as we worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes we encountered this statement of the preacher vanity all is vanity But what we're able to see is that the preacher uses vanity in at least two different ways. Sometimes he uses the word vanity to mean that which is brief and fleeting. That which is like a vapor or a mist or a breath. It's hard to catch. And then he also uses vanity as that which is frustrating, that which is impossible to comprehend. He talks about it like chasing the wind. You can chase the wind, but you it's a futile effort. And he's saying that there are things in this life that are beyond understanding, so to us they are meaningless. They make no sense, and therefore it becomes frustrating. And I believe that the way the preacher is using vanity in verse 8 is in this second way. That life will be filled with things we don't understand, things that will frustrate us things that will perplex us. He's using it in that way. and He's saying as we live life, as we live a long life, we'll have many dark days. And it'll be perplexing. We won't understand it. It would would be many times just frustrating as we live life in a fallen world that is broken by sin. Now, one of the things that is very clear as you read the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 11, is that the preacher, he is aware he's concluding, and he's thinking about death. The preacher is thinking about the brevity of life. He's thinking about the certainty of death. He's aware that life is brief. He's aware that death is certain. And so naturally his mind would turn to those who are young. Those who are strong and humanly speaking have much of their lives still before them to live. And so in verse 9 he directly addresses the young and although he speaks directly to young men or the young man, obviously that includes young women as well. And notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. 
The preacher's point is that young people especially are to pursue the enjoyment of life when they have time and while they have strength. And so he gives them what seems almost like a blank check when he tells them to walk in the ways of their heart. He's saying, pursue your desires. Pursue your dreams. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. He's saying, be guided. Be, be, you have this blank check just to, to live this generous, this broad-minded kind of way. And then he continues in verse 10, and he calls young people to remove vexation from their heart and to put away pain from their body. I mean, he's calling them to this kind of abundant, unbridled life, pursuing the joys that this life is able to offer. What does the preacher mean when he says in verse 10, vexation from your heart and Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Wouldn't it be great if it was easy as, you know, remove vexation from your heart, done. Put away pain from your body, done. Be nice if we could do that. But clearly the preacher is not implying that young people have this ability to remove from their heart that which angers and grieves and irritates, that which vexes us. Nor is he saying that they can rid their bodies of that which produces weakness and pain and weariness. So what is the preacher saying? Well, the call to remove vexation from the heart is really a call, really, to patiently learn to cope with the aspects of life that tempt us to become angry and to irritate us and that bring us grief. He's calling us to learn to cope, as it were. You see, the vexation in our heart really is a response to the things that are going on around us. And truth be told, we can't control those things. We can't control hurricanes. We can't control how we have been affected. We can't control the loss of a job. Sometimes we cannot control divorce and a marriage. We can't control many times when we have been sinned against in very, very harmful ways. So what the preacher is doing is he is calling us to learn to patiently cope with these kinds of situations that are very, very vexing. As I was preparing, I thought about people who are faced with the circumstance this morning of property loss, and some didn't have insurance, and some didn't have enough insurance, and even those who had insurance, the damage was below the deductible, so they have to still find the money to be able to do that, and it can be very vexing. And then some who have legitimate claims are dealing with insurance companies that are being just unethical in many ways and trying to wiggle their room out of paying at all or paying what they, what they should. And for many people, these are vexing situations. They bring vexation 
of heart. But you know the best way that I know to remove vexation from our hearts? The best way I know from Scripture that removes vexation from the heart is to grow in our trust in a sovereign Lord. Grow in our trust in a sovereign Lord who is at work in all things for the good of his people. That's what the Word of God says. That God is at work in all things, and all things includes bad things. Because if all things does not include bad things, then all does not mean all. And when we grow in our trust in a sovereign Lord who is at work in all things for the good of his people, the circumstance doesn't change. But the vexation of our hearts turns into trust in the Lord. We find ourselves no longer irritable towards people and life and circumstances, but we come to a place of quiet trust in a sovereign Lord because at the end of the day, that's who we're dealing with. That's who we're ultimately dealing with. We are dealing with the sovereign Lord of the universe. What does it mean to put away pain from the body? Commenting on this statement in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, theologian Michael Michael Eaton writes the following. This text, with its contrast between heart and flesh, the inner and outer aspects of life, emphasizes physical weakness. Thus the exhortation is to remove the physical barriers to joy as far as possible. No premium is placed on physical hardships as such. Listen to what he says now. If the removal of bodily pain and discomfort is within reach, it should be taken. If the removal of bodily pain or discomfort is within reach, it should be taken. I think what the preacher is getting at and what Michael Eaton is making even more clear is that there are some people who believe, especially some who would profess to be Christians, that there's something godly about pain. There's something godly about suffering. And so they many times don't do what they can do to alleviate it. They may have opportunities to do it, but they somehow have this distorted view that the Christian life is is about deprivation of joy, and the Christian life is about suffering and difficulty and all of these things. And so though the relief is within reach, they or some measure of relief is within reach, they don't take it. But part of enjoying life, part of pursuing this life that is before us, calls us to remove bodily pain or discomfort from our lives to the extent that we are able to do it, to the extent that it is within our reach. Now notice at the end of verse 10 that the preacher gives the reason for urging young people to remove vexation from their hearts and to put away pain from their body. He says, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That's the reason that you need to pursue life with this very intentional pursuit of enjoyment. 
almost an urgent pursuit of enjoyment. He says, for youth and life, for, for, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now here in this particular case, the preacher is using vanity in that other sense. He's not using vanity as vexation and and not understanding and frustration and life being meaningless and we don't understand why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And we don't understand why we serve the Lord and our property got damaged and our neighbor next door who doesn't serve the Lord, their property is fine. We don't understand those things, but that's not what the preacher is talking about here. What the preacher is talking about here is vanity as in terms of brief, because this word means a mist or breath. And what he is saying is the reason you need to pursue life this way, focusing primarily on young people, is because youth and the dawn of life are fleeting. They're quickly passing away, and therefore you must with some degree of urgency and intentionality pursue this enjoyment of life. Now, I, I don't have the time uh, to ask people to show their hands to find out what they think about Christians enjoying life, but I, I imagine that for some people, they find it strange that the Bible actually calls Christians to enjoy life. Some Christians find that strange because they've been taught that the Christian life is boring and that Christians miss out on the enjoyments of life. But again, the opposite is true. The Word of God is calling us to a full enjoyment of life. And so the preacher rightly says in these four verses, enjoy your fleeting life. But that's not all that the preacher says. Not only are you to enjoy your fleeting life, but he also says, this is my second and final point, you are to remember God's final judgment. You are to remember God's final judgment. Enjoy your fleeting life, but remember God's final judgment. The preacher is giving this modifying caution at the end of verse 9, immediately after telling young people to walk in the ways of their heart and in the sight of their eyes. So really, he doesn't give a blank check. He doesn't say, do what you want, live as you please. No, he modifies it by saying, but remember, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So as we pursue the enjoyment of our feeding lives, we are to remember God's final judgment. So these words, again, to enjoy life as we take them to heart, we don't take them to heart in a vacuum. They're given together with this reminder of God's future final judgment. In other words, what the preacher is saying is that God is going to be the one who's going to finally judge our pursuit of joy, and how we live this life. It's not to each his own. God is the one at the end who will judge us. Now theologians who are much smarter than I make the point that judgment in verse 9 
doesn't re refer to judgment in this life, but it actually refers to the final judgment, the day of judgment, because in the original it says there's a T-H-E in the original uh, Hebrew language, there's a the judgment that is stated. So it's referring to the final judgment. That does not mean that God does not at times bring judgment in our lives now. He does. But it's not the final judgment. That's some kind of a preliminary judgment that comes to us. But there's going to be a day of final judgment that will come to all of us. Now, I, I know that for many of us this morning, we're, we're facing this text perhaps for the first time. But this text should have a sobering effect on us. This should have a sobering effect on us and also a restraining ref effect on us to keep us from pursuing life's pleasures that are not pleasing to God. It should restrain us because we remember God is going to bring me into judgment for all of these things, for the way that I live this life. So it has this sobering effect, but it also has this restraining effect. And this is why the correct understanding of these four verses is that God is calling us to soberly enjoy life. Soberly enjoy life, mindful of the future judgment. Not recklessly and carelessly and thoughtlessly enjoy life. Because to live that way, you're not living mindful that one day you're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for our lives. So these are very, very sobering words. But know that for all these things, God will bring you in to judgment. Friends, if we take these words to heart, we would all live in the fear of the Lord. We would all live mindful that one day we're going to stand before him, we're going to be judged, and we're going to give an account for our lives. But you know, as sobering as these words are, these words are not enough for fallen people like you and me to be restrained to do what is right. These words are not enough to cause us to live in a way that would enable us to have our lives to meet with approval before God when we stand before him on the day of judgment. Not enough. And it speaks to our inability to do this on our own. And this is why Jesus had to come. And see, this is part of the function of the book of Ecclesiastes in our Bibles. The book of Ecclesiastes makes the case for why God had to send Jesus to this earth. Jesus had to come because he needed to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to live a life that is perfectly pleasing to God. Had Jesus not come on this earth, 
no human being would have ever been able to stand before God and receive a verdict of pleasure and approval for the lives that they lived. Jesus came to live this perfect life because that's what God requires. God requires of us perfection. Why does he require perfection? Because he is perfect. A perfect God requires perfection. So Jesus came because none of us could live this perfect life. He came to live the perfect life on behalf of those who could never do so. But more than that, Jesus also came not just to live the perfect life, but to die a substitutionary death. He came to die a death that would satisfy and pay for the sins and the shortcomings of people who could never make it right with God themselves. Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus didn't come and go to the cross and die in the place of sinners, then sinners like you and me would be judged guilty before God and we would be separated from him. And so the only people who will survive the judgment, and I, and I say this because I recognize how easy it is to walk out of this place and say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to enjoy my life, but I'm going to really make sure that I live in such a way that when God brings me into judgment, I will be okay. Friends, we can't do it. We cannot do it. We it is, it is an impossibility to do it. And so I say these things this morning as I conclude that you don't believe that you can grit your teeth and strengthen your spiritual muscles and that you can go out there and on your own you can live a life that's pleasing to God. And again, the reason is that God requires perfection. And if you just can do this 99.9%, then God still isn't pleased. He's only pleased with 100%. And the only person who was able to do this 100% in terms of living this life that's pleasing to God is God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came on this earth. So the only people who will survive the perfect judgment of God will be those people who are now resting and trusting in Jesus in his perfect life that he lived and the substitutionary death that he died on behalf of sinners. And I think we all know what a substitute is, or we should know. A substitute is one who stands in the place of another. So when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't there for his own sins. He was there for the sins of sinners. He was a substitute for sinners. In Christianity Explored this week, one of the young persons who was attending asked, why God turned his back on Jesus? That was a very, very good question. And the reason God turned his back on Jesus is because God was treating Jesus the way you and I deserve to be treated. You can treat him any differently because Jesus was our substitute. And what we saw happening to Jesus is what was supposed to happen to us. He took our place. He became our substitute. And what God says is all those who put their trust in Jesus 
he credits the perfect life of Jesus and he credits the substitutionary death of Jesus to them. And so when we stand before God, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, when we stand before God on the day of judgment, God will not be pleased with us because of us. He will be pleased with us because of Christ. Our substitute, the one who we plead. And it's the only way, it is the only reason that anyone will pass the judgment of God. If we approach the judgment of God and we believe that God is going to be pleased with us because we didn't do this and we didn't do that and we're depending on ourselves, we will be rudely awakened to find out it's not good enough for God. The only ones who will survive that judgment are those who approach it fully assured that they have nothing righteous in and of themselves. And so they are fully resting and fully trusting in Jesus. And God sees the righteousness and credits the righteousness of Jesus, of Jesus Christ to them. And on that basis, he's able to receive them into his heavenly kingdom. Our sins, those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven because they were judged on Jesus Christ. Every time we sin and God forgives us, the reason he forgives us is because Christ has paid for those sins. And that's the basis upon which he is able to forgive us. The only aspect of the judgment that we as Christians, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, the only aspect we should be concerned about is our rewards. When you trust in Jesus, you don't have to worry again about your sins. And let me just say this in, in passing. There's some people who still believe, even though they have come to Christ, even though they have confessed their sins and, and received God's forgiveness of those, their sins, they still believe that one day they're going to stand before God, before the whole world, and they're going to answer for every one of their sins. That's not what Scripture teaches. If God does that, then he's getting payment twice. He got it when Jesus died on the cross, when he was supposed to take our place and be our substitute and bear our sins, and then we still have to give account for those sins again. That's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that those sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and God will not mention them again. I mean, you think about it. Do you think a person who says they forgave you and every now and then when they see you, they bring up what you did and say, but I forgive you for that, you know. You know you're not forgiven. It's not to be mentioned. And the Lord will not mention it again. And brothers and sisters, that is mercy and that is grace. But what the Bible does teach is that we will stand before God and we will be rewarded according to our works. And we won't all be rewarded the same. Rewards will vary based on our service to the Lord and how we lived for the Lord. But the issue that will not come up on the day of judgment is our sin and our salvation. That's a settled issue. 
but we will be judged according to our works. In the same way for, for unbelievers. Unbelievers will be judged according to how they lived, and their punishment will also not be the same degree. Scripture says those who knew to do the will of God and didn't do it, they're beaten with many stripes, and those who didn't will be beat, beaten with few stripes. So those who had more light and more knowledge would certainly have greater punishment. So brothers and sisters, as we live life, as we seek to obey these words of the preacher to enjoy life, let us seek to please God in the process. But let us not make the mistake that in and of ourselves we can do anything that is truly righteous in the eyes of God. And see, there's a tension with this. I know for some people, if you think, well, if how I live really at the end of the day isn't going to matter because God is going to look at Jesus, I can live any way that I want to live. Well, if you're thinking like that, you have to check to see if you belong to Christ. Because even though we know that we cannot in and of ourselves live this perfect life that God requires, and we have to rely on Jesus and trust in Jesus for it, because our hearts have been transformed, there is a desire to please God to the fullest extent that we possibly can as fallen men and women, boys and girls. We want to please him. We want to please him. We, we know we're going to fall short. We know that we cannot away from Jesus. And see, this is, this is again the reason that Jesus came. It's even the reason why we have the law. We have the Ten Commandments, and none of us could obey the Ten Commandments fully and perfectly. And the purpose of that is to cause us to run to Jesus, the one who did obey it fully and perfectly. Those of you who are present this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that you are away from God, you know that you're not right with him. You know, perhaps you were here this morning as we sang it as well. Maybe you sang, maybe you didn't, but you know it's not well. But it can be well. It can be well with your soul this morning if you will take to heart these words of the preacher that God is going to bring you into judgment. But if you trust in Jesus, if you accept that he died in your place, that he was your substitute, that he lived the perfect life you could never live, then in the true sense, you would already be judged because God judged Jesus for the sins of sinners as he hung on the cross. And it's been said that sin is going to be punished in one of two places. It's going to be punished on the back of Jesus on the cross, or it's going to be punished on the back of sinners who don't trust in Jesus in hell. And so this morning, I urge you to turn to Christ. I urge you to turn from sin. I urge you to recognize that you have no chance of surviving this holy, perfect judgment of God outside of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. It's our only hope. So would you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, cry out to him for mercy. 
cry out to him for forgiveness and turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray together.